Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Evidence-based supportive ICU care in synchrony with disease-specific treatments are the basis for improving outcomes in critically ill patients. The ABC-DEF bundle is a collection of evidence-based interventions aimed at enhancing patient recovery and liberation from the ICU. In today's episode, we will discuss ICU liberation during the COVID-19 pandemic. What have we learned about applying the ABC-DEF bundles to COVID patients, and what have we learned from COVID that can improve our efforts of ICU liberation for all critically ill patients. Our guest is Dr. Wesley Ely. Dr. Ely is a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine with subspecialty training in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Dr. Ely's research has focused on improving the care and outcomes of critically ill patients with ICU-acquired brain disease, manifested acutely as delirium and chronically as acquired dementia. He is the co-director of the Center for Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction and Survivorship the CIBS Center, which has enrolled thousands of patients into clinical trials, answering vital questions about ICU-acquired brain disease and other components of ICU survivorship. His team developed the CAM-ICU, the primary tool used to measure delirium in ICU-based trials and clinically at the bedside. It is a real honor to welcome him back to the podcast to discuss a topic he is passionate about and has been instrumental in advancing our understanding. Wes, welcome to Critical Matters again. Sergio, thank you so much. It's really a lot of fun to talk to you and I always learn whenever I'm with you. So I, I know I'm in the right spot when I'm on Critical Matters. Excellent. And we were, were chatting, obviously, before we started recording about what an uh, incredible year this has been for, for all of us worldwide, but also in particular for critical care with its challenges, but also with the opportunities to really make a difference for our patients. And today I, I want to talk about a topic that obviously uh, you've been a a passionate um, advocate to moving forward and has really transformed the way we think in the ICU compared to when I was training. So why don't we start, Wes, by, by maybe you could explain in general terms, what do we mean by ICU liberation? Yeah, exactly. ICU liberation basically is, is a gift to us as intensivists and as ICU teams because it creates a structured framework by which we can get our patients back where they want to be in life. The technology we've got makes it very easy for us to kind of dehumanize the situation in the ICU with all the beeps and buzzers and ventilators and sedation. And then we kind of lose the person inside the patient. And what ICU liberation does is through the A to F bundle, the A, B, C, D, E, F bundle, we learn and have a way on rounds with our ICU teams, the nurses, the doctors, the pharmacies, et cetera, to essentially focus on what matters the most to patients. And we're liberating them, in a sense, from our tendency to dehumanize them. And, and we bring them back into, the, into the, where they want to be, awake, alert, out of bed, and so forth. And I think that one of the biggest paradigm shifts, at least for, for, for me and during my practice, has been that during training and the initial phase of my career, uh, like many intensivists, I was hyper-focused on what was in front of me, and we almost kind of forgot about patients once they left the ICU. Yet, obviously, through many research uh, studies that you have done and many others, we now recognize that 
the effects of what we do upstream in the ICU have tremendous impact on the life of our patients downstream months and years afterwards. And I believe that really focusing on that is the most important thing in terms of ICU liberation. You know, I had a, a young woman who developed ARDS and sepsis, and she, I'll never forget her, blonde hair, bright, a mother of two, came in with ARDS, and she was up in our unit for two months. And about a year later, after she survived, she came back to the hospital, and I expected this, oh, doctor, thank you for saving my life, et cetera. And she let me have it. And I'm glad she did because I'll never forget what she did. She wagged her finger, Sergio, in my face and said, you did not do your job. Wow. And I was like, whoa, this is an assault. But then it was a beautiful wake up call to me. I did not do my job because my job, she's told me, your job was to get me back to my life the way it was before. And I spent this whole year basically trying to walk up the two steps get me into my house and trying to be a, a mother again. And I was left so incapacitated. And that was one of the driving forces in me developing the A2F bundle and saying, I'm not going to be that doctor anymore. I've got to keep the, the downstream effect, like you put it beautifully, Sergio. I cannot just look upstream. I've got to look downstream at where they're going to be in their life. And that kind of convicted me to not let them sit in that bed immobilized and sedated for so long the way that I thought was the right answer and it's the wrong answer. Absolutely. And you did mention the, the A to F bundles. And I do believe, Wes, that probably to refresh the memories of those who've been only thinking of COVID or if somebody's been hiding under a rock, could you just give us a, a quick overview of what these elements are? Absolutely. Uh, and this is, uh, this is an evidence-based safety bundle checklist, essentially, like a, like a pilot uses on an airplane to get you from LA to, you know, to New York, that, you know, that's how they get the plane safely across the country. Well, we got to get these patients safely through their ICU stay. And what we did was we took 400 peer reviewed papers in critical care, 35 of which are New England Journal, JAMA and Lancet, and put them into something easy to remember, like Malcolm Gladwell says, you know, make it, if it's going to tip, it's got to be easy and sticky to remember. And it's just the first, you know, letters of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, six letters. And so it's A is analgesia. We always want to keep pain in our mind first. B is both SATs and SBTs. So stopping sedation, stopping the ventilator and seeing if they can be liberated from that regard. C is choice of drug, and that's trying to avoid benzos and other GABAergic drugs. D is delirium monitoring and management. E is early mobility. And F is family engagement. So this A2F bundle, I just call it letter A, number two, letter F. We've, we've published data in over 30,000 people and well over 100,000, you know, I, there's no telling how many people have been cared for with this. But what we do know is this, Sergio, the more you implement the steps of this bundle, the higher is the survival rate, the shorter the ICU length of stay, the less ICU bounce backs, less transfers to nursing homes, more discharges to home, and way less delirium and coma. So you get the person back by doing this at the bedside. Yeah. And I think that two very important aspects of this bundle that I would like to hear your comments on are, one is that, you, you said it, there's a dose response. So there's no reason not to start today. 
And the more you do, the greater the benefit. And number two, no matter where you are with these bundles, there's room for improvement, right? It's that mastery asymptote that nobody ever gets to perfection. And I think that this really should be the impetus for every ICU in the country, no matter how how much they think they're doing or how much they're not doing to really push this forward. That's a, Those are great teaching points. Um, we, we don't have to be afraid of doing these changes. And a lot of times people are afraid of change. Um, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, um, some doctors from Spain wrote to me and said, Dr. Ely, we're seeing so much delirium and so much coma. Can't we do a, a large international study? And I was like, sure. So we got together with our team here at the SIBS Center. SIBS is CIBS, Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction Survivorship. That's We've got over 100 people in this center at Vanderbilt doing this research. And we got together and talked about it. And we decided, you know what, we, we should do this with these international doctors. And I wasn't on Twitter. I've never been on Twitter before. But for this, I got on Twitter. And my handle is just at West Ely MD. So just very simple. Um, what's that? Eight letters. W-E-S-E-L-Y-M-D. And with that new Twitter account, I sent out an at, a, uh, a call to enroll into what we call the COVID D study. And that study has now been published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine. In two weeks, Sergio, I was amazed by Twitter, the power of Twitter. In two weeks, we enrolled 2,100 patients in 14 countries, 70 plus ICUs. And, and what we learned was, was intense. It, there, there is absolutely a dose response, just like you said, with implementation. And I can go into more details of that if you want, but it was a truly powerful learning experience that's very COVID related. Well, I think that since we brought up COVID, it's a great place to maybe di dive a little bit deeper into the impact COVID-19 had had on all aspects of ICU liberation. And uh, I guess we, we can start with one of the first things, and we can go maybe by, by letter, but that I noticed is all of a sudden it felt that I was back in fellowship, Wes, and we were paralyzing, using benzos, and this mass hysteria where we're immobilizing patients. What happened? Yeah, I, I think that we have to we have to cut ourselves a little slack and realize that nobody intended to hurt anybody and nobody intended to do the wrong thing, but it was super scary. And, you know, I was not in Bergamo or Ann Arbor or New Orleans or New York myself, but I have fellows, for example, in New Orleans, uh, Bud O'Neill, Dave Jans, Chris Thomas, three former Vanderbilt trainees who were at the heart of a pandemic uh, surge in New Orleans and Baton Rouge, where they were getting you know, a dozen people every 30 minutes admitted into their hospital with rip-roaring COVID. And it was just super scary. But those doctors, those surge doctors, a couple of months later said, we've got to get back to our basics. We've gotten completely away from all that we knew and proved helped people. And what they were doing when they were away from their basics and kind of turned topsy-turvy was just flying by the seat of their pants, deeply sedating everybody, running out of propofol, starting them on benzos and saying, oh, okay, this is a lot simpler now. They're quiet. They're in a coma. It's easier. And we know that if left to our own tendencies, we will over sedate. And we will say, you know what? They were freaking out a minute ago and now they're calm and I can do whatever I want on the ventilator and I can take over their body. And that is a very kind of tempting thing to do in the ICU is just to completely take over the body, but it's a very dangerous thing to do for the human body. 
It, it actually creates new disease. And even though it, it may seem great to be kind of the master of our domain, uh, take over that person's body, it creates the, the seriously profound problems of post-intensive care syndrome because under our noses, they're starting to develop ICU-acquired weakness and actually dementia, and they'll end up with PTSD and depression. And, and so finding the right balance of all of this is what's been the goal over the past eight months of COVID once we kind of got over that initial disastrous circumstance. And it's also quite interesting that we're, we're obviously optimizing for immediate gains like improvement in the PAO2, yet we uh, have no visibility onto the damage we're causing downstream, right? And, and, and that's what's, what's so hard about this. And when you're overwhelmed, it becomes much easier, like you said, to, to, to default to this inertia. Now, I also saw recently... Wes let me, let me comment on that, by the way. You yes. talked about what we can see and what we can't see. You know, I, I was at a funeral yesterday for one of my colleagues, a dear, dear colleague, Pierre Massillon, who died here at Vanderbilt um, recently. And, and one of the things that was said at the funeral was, Pierre, they said, Pierre always told us the, the greatest things in life we cannot see. The most important things in life we cannot see. And it's matters of the heart and matters of the mind. And these are exactly the things that we cannot see as intensivists. We can't see how the brain is being damaged and how it's going to leave somebody personally distraught and disabled to feel like they aren't themselves anymore. You know, and if we are contributing to that depersonalization and, and cognitive disability, we've got to ask ourselves a real serious question. How can we restructure care that will preserve the things that the person, the person we're there to serve, thinks is the most important? You know? Yeah, absolutely. That, that to me, important. those elements are found in the A2F bundle. They I really agree. are. Okay. That's a great point, Wes. And and to the point of, of we were talking about, um, it, it, well, I guess the A, the B, but also the C, the choice of, of, of medication. We obviously had moved significantly away from benzos because of all the the risks they have uh, with with delirium and other problems. But I saw that that now we're seeing emerging papers associating heavy sedation and coma again in COVID with increased mortality. That might be when that's controlled for other factors, kind of a driver. Could you comment on that a little bit? Sure. So let me go. Let me let me speak to some direct evidence from our COVID D study. In this study where I went on to Twitter and we got you know, over 2,000 patients in two weeks enrolled, we learned something very important. Of all of the predictors of delirium, for example, the two most striking predictors of this profound form of organ dysfunction were overuse of benzos and underuse of families. The use of benzos drove up delirium by 60 to 70%, and the presence of family drove down delirium by almost 30%. So what happened in COVID was we started using benzos and propofol and put everybody into a coma, and then they couldn't relate to their family. They had no association with family. So that was kind of like a, if you had to design, if a mad scientist was going to design a, a, a terrible experiment to maximize delirium, COVID was it. And it, it just became this epidemic, delirium became this epidemic within the pandemic. And we started seeing double durations of delirium and coma up into the 14 to 18 days, whereas prior sepsis, you know, COVID is just viral sepsis. So prior sepsis of bacteria and such, which you and I are used to caring for, that delirium and coma duration is usually three to four days, six, seven days as an outlier. Now we're getting 15, 16, 17 days 
of delirium and coma. And we already know from our, from our brain ICU study that delirium is the number one driver, independent driver of an acquired dementia. So people are all worried right now about long COVID. And, you know, long COVID happens in people who aren't that sick with COVID, but in those who are sick, like we care for in the ICU, the worst case scenarios of long COVID are occurring and essentially picks on steroids, if you would. Yeah. Uh, they, they get out with profound dementia, profound PTSD, profound depression, total immobilization. And uh, don't you worry, Sergio, about, you know, these all these balloon celebrations of people surviving after 90 days and they're leaving in a wheelchair and we, we give them these, these parades. And that's wonderful. I'm so glad they survived. But I worry the second they get home, they're going to be like, wait a minute, what? What am I supposed to do? I can't walk. I can't think. And I can't go back to work. So yeah. where's and, and my life? And we're blind to that, which is the worst part. But I, but I also believe that those balloon celebrations are very much for the healthcare workers. And ultimately, what the real celebration for us <clears throat> is when somebody comes back and tells us that they're, they're functional and enjoying their life again, right, a year later. And that's really the, the challenge. And it's been very hard. Now, I want to I peel a little bit more of the, the delirium um, part because you, we talked about two factors you identified in the D study, which I think are fascinating, which is the overuse of benzos and the underuse of families. And we're obviously going to talk more about family in a second. But what about, Wes, there's been a lot of, you, you would hear people comment or, or, or post, oh, COVID causes delirium. And how much of this is the disease, the virus, and how much is what's happening around us, which was unprecedented. I've never had an ICU where every single person was the same diagnosis, was the same the same problem, similar lab, similar x-ray. I've never seen anything like this. And we obviously had changed our practice and we're totally overwhelmed. So how much do we know this from science? How much is the virus producing changes in the brain? How much is what we're doing? Or it's a combination of both? Yeah, we're learning this in science. We have a study right now called the BRAIN2 study. It's really BRAIN ICU2. The first BRAIN ICU study was the one we published in the New England Journal in 2013 where we showed that delirium was a predictor of dementia and that benzos were the number one predictor of, of, of the circumstance. So now we're doing brain two where we're collecting the brains and we're studying these brains actually in combination with Rush where you're, you know, that's your alma mater, right? Yep. Yep. And so we're working, it's Vanderbilt Rush study. It's an $18 million NIH study. And we, we do see the virus invade the brain. And we know that from early studies by Helms and others, and but it's it's minor. So the virus is getting up there. There's no question that it's causing some neural involvement. And we we do know that there's peripheral nerve involvement, anosmia at the nose, etc. But really, the other factors like overt clotting, profound you know, hypoxemia, the immobilization of the drugs. So I actually created a mnemonic called F COVID, and you know we hate COVID, so F COVID. And it's the, the, here's the, the list of things we need to consider when somebody's delirious in COVID is F for family isolation, get that family back involved, C-O-V-I-D, clotting, oxygenation issues, the virus itself, which is a piece of it, but, and we're learning how to treat that. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Uh, immobilization and then drugs. So family, clotting, oxygenation, virus, immobilization and drugs. And of those things, ask yourself, which are the most modifiable? Well, family's modifiable. Uh, clotting, we can anticoagulate if we know we have a big problem with, with DIC and such. Uh, oxygenation, we can treat that. 
the virus itself, we're learning about remdesivir and, and we're treating the viral inflammatory storm with steroids. And now it looks like we're probably gonna have some JAK inhibitors and other drugs coming down the pipe. Um, immobilization, we can, we can get them up out of the bed as long as we stop the drugs. That last D of COVID, F COVID is drugs, benzos. And uh, that, that is where we've got to get back on the horse and ride IC liberation and quit abandoning what we learned over the last 20 years. And I think that is obviously the most important message for, for this episode today for all our, our listeners who are at the bedside. We, we talked about, you talked about the, the eye of immobility and clearly what I saw at the beginning, especially in the surges of March where, where ICUs were overwhelmed and the nurses and, and clinicians were unsure of the risk they had, but it did seem that we were barely moving patients and that probably created a lot of problems. Any thoughts on what we've learned about early mobility in these patients, Wes? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, Polly Bailey was a nurse at Utah who was one of the original people to ever write about mobilization in the ICU. She has a paper, I think, in 2008 in critical care medicine. You can look up Polly Bailey. And Terry Klemmer was the intensivist on that paper. And there's a great story where... Roy Brower from Hopkins, the original low-volume low ventilation, six versus 12, first author in the New England, invites Polly out to, to Hopkins and, and takes her bed by bed in the ICU and says, Polly, what, what would you do here? And the first bed, she says, well, I'd, I'd stop sedation. And then they go to the second bed, and he presents the patient with ARDS and says, well, what would you do here, Polly? I'd stop sedation. And, and as Roy tells it, third bed, fourth bed, fifth bed, I'd stop sedation. You know. Um, I've been writing a book for two years. It's going to come out in September with Scribner. And my original title for this thing was Death of the Benzo. Uh, in, my, in my computer, I still have a file called Death of the Benzo. But, but that's not going to be the title of the book. It's too negative. It's not an appealing title. The, the book's going to be called Every Deep Drawn Breath. And that's, a, that's straight from a Steinbeck, uh, beautiful Steinbeck bit of prose. But in that book, I'm going to talk about when it comes down to September, all these things that, that I learned as a, as, a, as a physician at the bedside from patients. It's narrative nonfiction. It's real people, real stories. And the, the single most important thing that I have learned as, as a now graying physician is that this is a human being I'm caring for, and no amount of technology should shadow that this person has real interests, real cares and worries and concerns. And I can't know those things if the person's in a coma. I have to wake them up to talk to them, to make eye contact, to understand what matters to that person. And I, I hope that every deep drawn breath will, will galvanize the movement to back towards liberating people from us. That's my hope. Absolutely. And, and looking forward when that comes out in September. And I, I like both titles. But I do agree that the second one is much more poetic and probably uh, your editors are, are, are much more en enthusiastic about that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I had to listen to the editors on that one. But, but th 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 that death of the benzo thing, I thought we were almost there and COVID turned that back around the other direction. And when that benzo came back in the way it did, your question to me was, what about immobilization and COVID? And you cannot mobilize somebody if they're sedated. You, you just can't do it. You have to start. With, with that spontaneous awakening trial, avoiding the GABA, which lasts too long, 
getting them undelirious by mobilization, that is the rehumanization process of the A2F bundle. Yeah. And and the last component that I wanted to touch on related to COVID, and then we'll move on to surviving COVID-19 in the ICU, was the F, obviously, and, and the D study. And also, um, when you, you you were part of a of a international survey also talked about the effect of families there. Really, that was one of the most striking um, findings, which makes sense in retrospect, but also I think just illustrates how difficult it was talking with families on the phone when they weren't there, communicating with people, trying to, to get the loved ones connected. Um, can you comment a little bit more on, on, that, on that aspect with COVID-19 and what you've learned with the family? Sure, yes. Um, in COVID-D, in, in, in almost 2,100 people, there was only 8% in-person visitation and only 9% virtual visitation. Wow. That means that less than one in five people had any association with the most important people in their lives. Family cannot be treated as a luxury. The family, are, the family is a, an incredibly important part of the healing plan for these people. It's not op, they're not optional. It's like saying, oh, is oxygen optional when your sats are at 60%? No, it's not optional. You can't save a person's life. These people are suffering from the absence of their family. And what I wrote a, an op-ed piece with Rena Oddish, who's the author of In Shock. Y'all know who she is. She's amazing. We wrote an op-ed piece in the summer about family visitation. And we talked about how this is really a circumstance of injustice and prejudice. And we called it epistemic injustice, which is also a, a form of that is testimonial injustice. What it means is that we, we possess information that that the family can't have because we, we have this knowledge, this amount of knowledge that we don't share with family when they're not present with us. And, if, and likewise, the other way around, the family has knowledge that we need, but when we don't relate, have a relationship with the family and when the patient gets excluded from the family, there's all this injustice and prejudice going on. And we know that it has not hit all segments of society similarly. It's hit the people who don't have English as a first language, for example, in the US, uh, disproportionately people who migrant workers who can't come to the hospital etc so family visitation i think is a key part of the social justice that we need to pay attention to within the context of covid and ppe works sergio we know Excellent. that ppe works so there's absolutely no reason now that we don't have ppe shortages that we can't have family in there seeing the patient so in our unit there it's open and they, they can come in in PPE and, and see the loved ones. Um, uh, you know, at first it was closed even to non COVID patients, of course, but that those days should be over. And I just this week found that, that with the, with the surge, some of these hospitals are going back to closed family visitation and that just hurt my heart. Yeah, it's a problem. And, and I think it's, it's better now, but it obviously, like you said, depending on what's going on at each um, geographic location, uh, it's being limited, and like you said, we we what, what the other thing that that strikes a chord with me, Wes, is pre-COVID. Obviously, we had a big push to include families in our rounds, and uh, and I always explained to families, but really thought of families as you are the experts and the human being in that bed, and we need that information. And like you mentioned earlier, that's part of what we're trying to do in humanizing these patients and get the best outcomes for them. So we should also be seeking that information, which helps us 
care better for these patients. Exactly. I totally agree with you. I would like, you, you mentioned long COVID, which has been, a, I think, in the press and a lot of interesting publications coming out as we get, we get information. But one of the things that, that I wanted to ask you was, first, maybe we can talk about surviving COVID-19 in the ICU. And on the, on the bright side, it seems that if you have severe disease and you survive, your antibody response is quite robust and prolonged. On the downside, which is really the tragedy, is there seems to be a, a, a plethora of, of side effects, of complications that go on for a while that we're just barely coming to understand. So could you tell us just basically what, what do we understand by long COVID today? Sure, good. Uh, so let's get these, these, uh, term, this terminology straight. First of all, PICS is post-intensive care syndrome. It's the syndrome of ICU survivors who acquired new diseases while they were in their critical illness. And the, the hallmark of, of PICS is a neck up problem of, of three things, mental health, which is depression, for example, PTSD, um, cognitive dysfunctions like um, actually acquired dementia, and then neck down a motor sensory neuropathy, uh, a, a myoneuropathy. That's what PICS is. So that's part of long COVID. For somebody who's COVID and goes to the ICU and leaves, their, their long COVID is a, it, part of it is manifested as PICS. But what we also know is that people who never went in the hospital at all with COVID, I've got a patient right now who never went in the hospital with COVID and she has long COVID. She is a so-called long hauler. So a long hauler is a person with long COVID. And the, there's this, at least one in three people with COVID end up with long COVID. So long COVID is the scenario where this, long after the viremia is gone, the person has ongoing problems in their gut, heart, nerves, mind, um, et cetera, and it, oh, and lungs. And so, for example, we can take each organ. In the brain, they have brain fog, which is like an ongoing cognitive impairment, kind of a milder version of the dementia acquired after the ICU. They also, though, have the PTSD and the depression we discussed. In the heart, they'll develop a myopathy, uh, a cardiomyopathy, or valvular problems. And in the lungs, they develop essentially a COP, a cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, where the healing in the lung becomes like a keloid scar. So the lung itself gets keloided, and they have chronic interstitial lung disease and hypoxemia. Uh, pancreatitis can develop in the gut. They can also have ongoing diarrhea, dysmotility problems. Uh, the muscles and, and nerves are, are diseased. and there's uh, there, there's just that entire spectrum of things it can even be just chronic headaches, chronic fatigue, and it looks a lot like um, like uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and so there's a lot of overlap in those in those scenarios. This isn't some people have gotten annoyed by the term long COVID because they say this isn't new. Well, it's true. You know, a lot COVID COVID is viral sepsis, right? So there's nothing. There's nothing qualitatively different, but it's quantitatively different in COVID. We have, for example, in, in bacterial sepsis, we have clotting, hypoxemia, and ARDS. In, in COVID sepsis, the clotting is worse, the ARDS is worse and longer, and, and the inflammatory storm is, is more. So it's, it's quantitatively different, but not 
qualitatively different. It's the same stuff. Same with the post-viral illness that is chronic fatigue syndrome. Maybe the long COVID is just a worse manifestation of something we that other people have suffered from for you know decades from other viruses. Yeah, it does. And, and and the question I was going to ask you, Wes, which I've been thinking a lot about COVID is starting with uh, everybody that you, you meet outside of medicine tells you, obviously, they were impacted by COVID. Uh, like uh, talk about uh, everything is so unprecedented, so um, unexpected. Um, you never know what's going to happen, which is our is true, but it's always been true with life, right? Life is always unexpected. It's just that it seems like COVID because it impacted everybody and, 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 and the size and the magnitude has just amped the volume up where everybody can listen it all the time. And the same thing happens, I think, with a lot of what we're seeing at the bedside. I sometimes wonder if I had millions of cases all of a sudden of strep pneumonia, wouldn't we see like ICUs filled with ARDS, all these problems that we're seeing right now with clotting? How much of it is really unique to the virus? But there might be some of it. But how how much of it is just we never had so many cases at the same time in a short period of time of, of, of respiratory disease in our in our lifetime. We've had it in human history for sure. That's exactly right. Good. And, and, and like we discussed before we get on today, you know, in the in the in the pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic, you know, this has happened before and humanity has gone through these things before. So we continue to learn and we need to learn from our history, but also realize that this is a, it's not, as I said, it's not new stuff, but it's a different manifestation of things that, that the human condition has, has gone through in, in, in the past. Absolutely. And in terms of, of, of COVID and PICS, which obviously you've had a, a tremendous uh, interest in, and, 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 and I've had Carla on the, on, the, on the podcast in the past talking about PICS specifically, what, what are you seeing in terms of what works uh, there's been some reports suggesting that even for these long howlers, vaccination might be beneficial. But any comments of what we've learned new on these patients other than supportive and rec recognizing it? I think I think all the talk about the vaccine helping long COVID at this point, I would categorize it as anecdotal. Do I believe it? I have no idea. I, I really don't. It's, it's purely anecdotal at this point. Uh, there are a lot of people who seem to think that their that their long COVID got better after the vaccine. I really don't know. Um, for example, with the J and J vaccine, which just this morning, you know, got the big stop pulled on it. You know, I, I think that there's something real to the vascular complications that have happened in the J and J vaccine, but it's so rare that it, you know, it's 0.001%. So, how common is it that the vaccine helps somebody? Probably in the same rare category. It's vanishingly rare. It may be real, but I have no idea. So the treatment for long COVID is a good, thorough medical workup and taking one day at a time the problems the person has, making that human being who has the long COVID realize we have no immediate fix for this, but I'm not leaving you. I will be with you. They, they just want to have somebody present with them as they're going through that. And the first thing we should do for a long COVID patient is validate what they're going through. Quit telling them that it's not real. You know, it, it, for them, it is absolutely real and, and, and it's, it's a legitimate set of complaints. So the first thing to do is validate them and, um, and then to, to stay with them and, uh, and to not leave them and to take uh, one day at a time 
dealing with each individual problem and doing the best we can medically to handle that person's individual fingerprint of what their constellation of problems is. Yeah, and and as you say that, it, Wes, it, it, it just rings so true that that's the same attitude we should have with our colleagues, right? We need to validate what people have been through, empathize with them, and it's okay to not be okay after everything that happened, but we're, we're all in this together and kind of keep pushing forward, which I think is also something that has become very, very relevant post post COVID, just because of the volume again and, and and attending to the well-being of those around us and our and our own. I love that. Let's let's talk a little bit about lessons learned. Not only we talked about how we evolved in, in terms of what we learned about applying these bundles with COVID nineteen, but is there anything else you want to mention about the application of the ADF bundles in COVID nineteen specific patients that you think is something that is different today? than what we were doing in March based on what we've learned? Well, with regard to the, the D of the delirium in COVID, you know, we, we know that in sick COVID patients, it's darn near 90% delirium. I mean, it, it's a crazy high number that at some point they will have prevalent delirium, not the entire time, but at some point. And in these people, it's uh, it's incredibly important to remember that that delirium is a barometer of their illness. When they're getting clotting in their brain, lack of oxygen, uh, isolation, et cetera, we have to immediately jump on how can I modify the course of this brain dysfunction for this human being? And the ADF bundle hits on those major topics. And we usually use the Dr. Dre, the DDRE, which is diseases, drug removal, and environment. So when somebody with COVID gets delirious, I think, what are the diseases that could be causing this besides the COVID itself? And think about newly acquired sepsis, maybe a nosocomial infection, uh, the the drug removal. You know, what what drugs can I get off that are that are deliriogenic, that are psychoactive? But then the most important, really, letter of the Dr. Dre is the E, the environment. What can I do in this person's environment to help them? I, they they need more sleep, so I need to work on sleep wake cycles. Do they wear hearing aids and eyeglasses? Uh, because that, that's very sensory deprivation if I, they don't have those used, if they need them. And then what about, you know, day-night cycles and getting out of bed and mobilization and all these things? And then lastly, in the E, the environment, is that issue of family. How can I get the family back in front of them, whether it's virtually or in PPE, in person, holding their hand? And so those are the things that I learned about the bundle uh, that I really try and focus on each day. Absolutely. And what about lessons learned from COVID-19 that you think will have repercussion or implications for non-COVID patients? And, uh, and there's something specific about family I wanted to ask you, but just share with us your thoughts on that on that um, line of thought first. Well, the first thing that happens to me when, I, when we think about non-COVID patients is that everybody has been affected, whether you had COVID or not, because the the, a lot of the hospital policies that have been put in place have affected every single person in the hospital, not just the COVID unit. And so if you have somebody come in with meningitis or appendicitis or hyalonephritis, you know, and they can't have family visit, well, now they're, they're involved, you know, and, and their families are involved too, even though nobody in the family has COVID. So COVID has reached its tentacles out in a very dastardly way across the entire health healthcare spectrum and we just have got to keep that in mind because everybody's everybody's involved. 
Absolutely. And one of the things that you mentioned in the D study findings, the D COVID study was that one of the most modifiable um, risk factors for delirium was obviously family presence. And uh, that only 9% of families actually had a, a patients had a virtual visit. And that surprised me because when I think of family interactions as a positive, I usually think that we've now leveraged technology that existed before COVID to try to connect families. Now, it's not a replacement, but it's better than nothing. And I would have guessed that more than 9% of of patients actually got exposed virtually. Any thoughts on how we can magnify that for those family members who can't be at the bedside in the future? Sure, and I, I'm sure that number has gone up. You know, that was early in the pandemic in the April, May period of 2020. So hopefully that number has gone way up. But remember though, that there are families, especially poor families who don't have devices and who aren't on the other end of the, of, of the hospitalization at their houses don't have the ability to get onto an iPhone or an iPad because they don't even have one of those things. So that's part of the problem right there. And, we, and just like children in schools who were, who were isolated at their house from schools had a disproportionate problem in the, in the poor sector because they didn't have computers, these people are, di are likewise disadvantaged. I think that hospitals are much more though aggressive about virtual communication right now. I just don't want to see the virtual communication though be treated as equal to in-person visitation because they're, they're not the same thing. I agree. And I think that the, the, the way I was thinking about it also is that it shouldn't replace, but how many times have we had a family member who was out of state, right? And pre-COVID, it didn't even occur to us, uh, let's do a video call, right? We would just talk with them and give them information and maybe they would speak if they could on the phone with a, with their loved one. But I think you're absolutely right. It, it's a uh, it's a second best and far from, from from the real solution, which is to have families at the bedside interacting with our patients. Exactly. And, you know, I'll, I'll chime in here just another thing that we haven't discussed yet, which is for the listener, look up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, M-A-S-L-O-W, hierarchy of needs, or, or Maslow's pyramid, if you will. And Maslow was a famous psychologist who published this, this paper about Maslow's hierarchy and Jim Jackson and I published a paper on the application of this pyramid in the ICU. So if you look up Ely E.W. Maslow, M-A-S-L-O-W in, in PubMed, you could find this paper. And what we did was we, we took his hierarchy, and what it does is it starts at the bottom, and it says, you know, when we're at our absolute worst in life, we just fight for physiological principles, like support for failing organs, mechanical ventilators, vasopressors, dialysis. This is Maslow's application in the ICU. But as you go up that pyramid, up that hierarchy, we get to more and more of what makes us human. Instead of just physiologic, we then get to safety. Can we stay safe? And then we get to love and belonging, like visiting with families and people being on rounds and in the ICU and post-ICU support groups. And then we go up two more levels. The next one up is esteem. So we've gone physiologic, safety, love and belonging, esteem, which is respect, team communication, uh, dignity, optimizing pre-illness conditions and that sort of stuff. And then the last one, the highest one of all in the pyramid is self-actualization. And that really is about incorporating spiritual values into patient care, uh, acceptance uh, of new limitations, a new normal, if you will, for the, for the survivor who has PICS or long COVID. And then reconciliation of this new identity, kind of saying, okay, I know who I am now. It's a new normal for me. I accept that. I consent 
to it. And that way I can have a good quality of life because my actual quality of life is nearer to my expected quality of life. And this, this Maslow's hierarchy of needs is what we in the ICU do not focus on enough, but it's exactly what the bundle, the A2F bundle tries to get us to focus on is that getting, getting our patients back to that esteem, love, belonging, and self-actualization. Absolutely. And I will definitely link that paper. Uh, remember that paper um, that you published, I think it was uh, back in 2014 in Journal of Critical Care. So okay. we will definitely link that and it's a wonderful read. And, and also, obviously, Maslow's uh, pyramid also applies to ourselves as we try to heal and 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 find, again, self-actualization within our jobs. And yeah. uh, it, it's a great it's a great read. But why would we offer our patients what we want for ourselves? Right. So I absolutely. I think a great prism to, to look at at, uh, at 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 the care we deliver at the bedside. Wes, how do we get our ICU teams back on track? I think that uh, what we need to do, and, and again, I'm not a master of all knowledge here, but but we we have to help one another realize that what we've been through is it was was a lot, and that people are burned out and they're they're sad and. We need to help each other process that. We need to we need to take time to realize that what we went through was traumatic and that just like there's picks, there's also picks F, picks family, and there's picks essentially for the ICU team. Because we what we went through left us with some handicaps and some depression and probably some PTSD, et cetera. And we have to care for ourselves. And that sort of self-care will help us get healthy again and get us back to where we need to sit, where we will be able to say, how can I serve the other? Until we want to serve the other uh, with our whole self and not a burned out kind of shell of ourselves, we're not going to be able to focus. But when we do get to that place of focus, we just have to start with small PDSA cycles. What we learned in IC Liberation from 2010 to 2020, that uh, over a decade of implementation of the A2F bundle is this. You don't try to climb Mount Everest. What you do is you start with small hills. You climb a little hill and then another hill. And a great motto for our ICUs is, what can I do by Tuesday? What small step can I do by this Tuesday? And usually what that looks like, Sergio, is one doctor, one nurse, one patient. Not the whole unit, but you say, you know what, Nurse Betty, Dr. Janice, let's go to our patient, uh, Melissa, and let's see, this Melissa has COVID. She hasn't moved. She's been too sedated. Let's get Melissa awake, alert, out of bed. Let's employ the bundle. Let's round on her, saying the bundle out loud, and let's just the three of us, the patient, the doctor, the family, you know, doctor, the nurse, family, let's, let's figure out how to do it right for her. And then other nurses will see that and say, wait a minute, I want that for my patient. And then once we get it right, we'll be able to move to the next patient. So start small, one day at a time, and that's how we recover. We're going to essentially have to go through recovery. I love that. And what can we do by Tuesday, I think, is, is a great way to, to face it. And just one step at a time, but moving the ball forward to really get our patients in the best opportunity they have to, to recover and, and get liberated from this terrible critical illness. Wes, uh, we could talk for hours about this topic, but I do want to respect your time. And as you have uh, might remember from previous visits with us on critical matters, I do want to ask you some questions that are unrelated 
to COVID-19 and unrelated perhaps to ICU liberation. Would that be okay? Absolutely. Let's go for it. What book or books have influenced you the most during this last 12 months? Or what books have you gifted others during COVID that you thought would be, would, would be helpful? Oh, man, I love talking about books. Literature gets me through and it reorients me. Uh, and I'm not going to just give you answers uh, to medical books because I'm right now reading several non-medical books, if you don't mind. Um, but, you know, I'd like to start with a classic. I, I reread Sinclair Lewis's Aerosmith. And some of you have probably never read Aerosmith before, but this is a book that's uh, 100 years old, I guess, about. And uh, the doctor, the, the, the title is about a doctor named Aerosmith. And it won a Pulitzer Prize back in the day. And it's a wonderful story of discovery. He actually develops new techniques for dealing with tropical diseases. And Aerosmith is committed to patients and to their wholeness. So it's a beautiful read during COVID. He, um, he thinks about what makes someone free and how to be the best doctor to get that person back to freedom. And so, hey, liberation, freedom, that's the same concept, right? Um, another classic, and then I'll go to some more modern books that I just reread is, is Steinbeck's East of Eden. And that's where I took the title for my book, uh, Every Deep Drawn Breath, which is coming out with Scribner uh, in, in September. East of Eden is a, they, they made a movie out of it with James Dean. It was one of the only three movies that James Dean ever made before he died in the 1950s. And it's a book about human honesty and the kind of like the incredible journey that we can take either for the good or for the bad. And, and Steinbeck writes about some of the, the most heinous human characters ever in, in, in novels and some of the most pristinely innocent and, and, and beautiful characters too. So if you really want a story about humanity, East of Eden is a good one. Uh, now, a couple of medical books. Can I do those now? Absolutely. Okay. Um, since we're having so much end of life, uh, I, I recently read three great end of life books. One is uh, Jessica Zitter's book, Extreme Measures. And she is pretty famous. She did a, a, uh, a, video, a movie series on Netflix, which you can look her up, Jessica Zitter. She's an intensivist and, uh, and an end-of-life specialist, palliative care doctor. Angelo Valandez has a great book called The Conversation. It's about a revolutionary plan for the end of life. And uh, Valandez is a Harvard doctor who was a movie maker first. And so what Valandez does is he, he makes movies to, to show patients to try and help them realize what code statuses are to try and help people say, you know what, I, I do or I don't want that, but at least I'm, I'm honestly telling you based on a, a better knowledge of what code, getting a, a code is. Um, and there's a very good um, set of books by Katie Butler. She was a, a journalist and she wrote a, a, an incredibly good book called um, Knocking on Heaven's Door about caring for her own dying patients, which is an absolutely beautiful book. And then she had a follow-up called The Art of Dying Well, which is more of a practical guide to good end-of-life care. And let me just end with one completely unrelated book, which I just finished reading by Anthony Ray Hinton. Some of you have probably read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. He's the famous lawyer from Harvard who went down to Alabama, and he formed the what's called the EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative. And that, that book, Just Mercy, is amazing. One of the main characters in that book was Anthony Ray Hinton, who was falsely accused of murder and was in jail with a life sentence. And he spent all these years in jail for a crime he never committed. 
Well, he is now out of jail because the Equal Justice Initiative, the EJI, got him off. Finally, thank you, thankfully. And he wrote a book called The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life, Freedom, and Justice. So look up this book. It's a beautiful book of hope. It's hard to read because you have to go through what all he went through. But, but this book by Anthony Ray Hinton is an absolute beauty. And I hope that some of these titles help, uh, help your listeners to find uh, some, some balance in life because we have to read and learn of other people's stories to, to understand the perspective of our own lives. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the fascinating things about reading and literature is that the, the most important things in life, not only we can't see, but they're universal. And people have grappled with them now, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. And people who've been able to express that in writing have something to teach us and something that we can apply today to, to how we're, we're processing everything that's going on around us. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there, let me mention one more author. Uh, Rachel Clark is a very well-known uh, palliative care doctor in the UK. She's in England. And she wrote two awesome books, which I just read. One's called Dear Life. And it's a story of her own life and, and relationship with her father, who was a physician and who ends up dying. And then she just wrote one called Breathtaking, which is the inside scoop and COVID. I need to mention at least one COVID book. So this book of, uh, about COVID in the, inside the NHS and National Health Services in the UK, she has kind of a behind the scenes look because she is in the NHS. And so that book, Breathtaking, is a very relevant COVID book. Excellent. And we'll, we'll link all these to the show notes so that people can look them up. But thanks for sharing this, this wealth of titles. Obviously, some I've read, some I've not. And it uh, sounds like a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of good things to learn from, from these books. And we'll be looking for your book in September, Wes. That, that's exciting, actually. I'm, I'm very, very, very excited to, to read that when it comes out. Thank you, Sergio. I appreciate your help today. And thanks for letting me be on. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to, to end maybe with you asking uh, asking you if there's something in particular you want to share with all our listeners, something you want every intensivist to know, and that that can be our departing thought. Sure. Yes. My my parting thought would just be: don't forget why you came to this field. You were called because you have special talents to help serve another human being, and you're going to be able to open up the door to a better survival for your patients by giving them extra days in life, which, will, which every day is a gift. But those people who would have died that now because of your service to them will have more time with their family and their loved ones. And by focusing on what matters to them and not what's the matter with them, you can help become the best ICU team member that you can ever be. And I just hope that everybody finds fulfillment in that. And, and remember, this is a vocation. It's not a job. It's a calling and it's an art. And it's not, you're not a technician. You're not just a provider. You're, you're, you, you're an artist. And it's that, art, it's that combination of art and science that allows you to serve that other person to the full. I think that's the perfect place to stop. Wes, thank you so much for everything you do and for sharing your time and your expertise with us. Always a pleasure to see you and to talk with you, and I look forward to talking with you soon again. Okay, thank you, Sergio. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.